So I was a young lawyer at Fulbright and Jaworski, a large, large firm, and and uh, uh, I basically at that firm had a responsibility of making sure that about seven or eight hundred lawyers who had more seniority than I did were happy. And so some of what that entailed was some lawyer would say to me, hey, go do this. And I would say, yes, I'll be, I'd be happy to. And I had been asked to go to Laredo, Texas, to go to federal court and make an appearance at a hearing. So I got on Southwest Airlines. I flew down to the valley. I got the, there the night before because I couldn't get there that morning. So I get up the next morning. I shave. I put on my lawsuit. Um, I uh, get <laughs> legal humor. It can't be beat. I get get myself ready. And I get there 30 minutes early because I don't want to be late. Federal, I mean, at federal court, you don't mess around there, okay? And so I get there 30 minutes early. I go into the courtroom. There's just one fellow there. He doesn't look like a lawyer. He's dressed nice, but he doesn't have coat and tie on. And if you're a, a, a male lawyer in court, you're expected to wear a coat and tie. In fact, I think you get kicked out if you don't. So he doesn't have a coat and tie, but hey, it's just him and me, so... I'm thinking I'm friendly with him and, hey, how are you? And all of this mess and we're talking and he's a really nice fella. I'm wondering, I don't want to say, are you a lawyer? You know, in the valley, do you do things a little less formal? Are you allowed to be in here? But he just seemed okay. Then the gradually the courtroom started filling up as everybody came in for the 9 o'clock docket. And the judge starts calling the docket. Well, when the judge starts calling the docket, he doesn't call my case first. First case he calls is this fella who I'd been visiting with. Now, this fella, turns out he's not a lawyer. He used to be an airplane pilot. But the FAA had taken away his license. And he was trying to get it back. The reason he'd lost his license is because he was insane. <laughs> so I'd been alone with this crazy man in the courtroom... Talking about the weather and everything else for some time. Trading phone numbers. <laughs> and the judge said to him, he said, uh, Mr. So-and-so, I appreciate your petition, but I'm not ready to grant you your license back until you have a psychologist sign off. On so he says, uh, he says, but judge, I'm sane now. The judge says, well, I'd kind of like to hear that from someone other than you. He says, well, Your Honor, I've tried to get it from other people. I've written some letters and someone may be in here to testify on my behalf. And the judge says, well, I've gotten those letters. And there's some of what make me question your sanity. And the guy says, but, but judge, judge, I'm sane now. The judge said, the letter you wrote, carbon copied, which is old pre-email speak, it's where the CC comes from in email, which, by the way, should not be CC because that's re not a carbon copy. But I'll leave that alone. So he says, he says, uh, 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 listen, I read your letter. You copied the president of the United States on the letter asking him to show up today to testify to your sanity. Do you honestly think he's coming? Man looks around the courtroom and says, well, I, I don't know. I don't keep his schedule, but I'm hoping he'll be here. At which point the judge says, and then you copied the Pope. 
the guy says, judge, surely if the Pope says I'm sane, you're going to have to go with this. He's the vicar of Jesus. And the judge says, do you see the Pope in the courtroom? Well, no. Do you even know the Pope? Well, no. Well, what makes you think the Pope's going to testify you're sane if you don't even know him? Man says, well, judge, he's the Pope. He would know I'm sane. And judge says, you're not getting your license back. I'm sorry. Bye. And the guy left the courtroom. Now, it is always interesting to me as a lawyer to show up at these hearings and to hear the criminals and to hear the people who are trying to, to, to escape from some responsibility or liability or culpability. It gives me the woolies, but I find it very interesting. And they'll bring in chained prisoners. And it is almost an absolute rule that when you see someone like that, they never really, really want to go to jail. Almost everyone is saying, please help me keep from going to jail. And they're providing this ready defense. They don't want to go to jail. Well, as we're going through the history of the church in the book of Acts right now, as we're going through the New Testament, the stunning thing to me is Rabbi Paul, he's, he's different. He seems to want to go to jail. This is a man that offers absolutely no real defense for what he's indicted for. And I think it's a fascinating study. And so I want us to do it. I want us to look at it for a moment. If we put up a map of the Middle East, Paul, in our journeys from last time we dealt with this, Paul was in Caesarea. He stayed there a few days. He's been up in the rest, in the, the Greek Mediterranean world. And he's come to Caesarea and he makes the journey to Jerusalem, Caesarea, excuse me, Dale Hearn, Caesarea. I got a Latin pronunciation there and it upsets Dale. So he makes the 60 mile journey to Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts 21 verse 15. And so we'll look at it together and see if we can't find a couple of nuggets as to why Paul was so willing not to fight for his release and his innocence. Acts 21, let's start with verse 15. Let's see if we can wrangle this right. There we go. All right. So this is Luke writing the history. And if you'll recall, at this point, Luke has joined with Paul and his troop. And so this is a point where Luke's speaking in a first person plural. It's we. It's we. So after these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. I love the way Luke writes. I've told you before, he's a lawyer's dream author because he's constantly using the names of people that you can go back and check him with. You'll recall he wrote this to Theophilus, but he was writing it as an orderly account based upon information 
Luke had gotten from eyewitnesses. And so Luke is always quick to identify by name and location, if necessary, the various places of his information. So he says, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Now, if you're reading this at first blush, and you read that that Paul is received by the brothers gladly, and Paul goes in and it's this James, you might say, which James is it? There are several James in the New Testament. Well, if we've been reading Acts carefully, we know that the Apostle James, who was the brother of John, has already been killed. He was martyred earlier. This is... Most scholars agree, James, the brother of Jesus, who was an early leader in the church. And and so we have James, the brother of Jesus, an early leader in the church, and all the elders. Now, some people say that this is a sign that, that Paul was held in disdain by the other apostles. Because you don't have the apostles here. Where are the apostles? I want to throw something out at you. If we could go back to the PowerPoint. Oh, you beat me there already. This says, James and all the elders were present in Acts twenty two eighteen. If we go back in time to an earlier time that Paul went to Jerusalem, it's called the Jerusalem Conference, where they were discussing how to handle the Gentile issue. It's recorded in Acts chapter 15. And at that visit, we read this. The apostles and elders were gathered together, gathered together. And so Paul went in with all of them. And this is why people say before there were apostles, now there's just James and the elders. And where are the apostles? I think the answer to this lies in part in the gospels themselves. You'll recall after Jesus' resurrection, before Jesus ascends, Jesus gave the following instructions to the apostles. He told them to go, therefore, to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. When it says to make disciples of all nations, well, to an extent that started... As the nations descended to Jerusalem, or ascended to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem. As the nations ascended to Jerusalem for Pentecost, for example. But church history teaches us that after a period of about 12 years, the apostles left Jerusalem and went out into the mission field. And that makes sense with the narrative that we have in Acts. It also makes sense if you read, for example, Paul, when Paul was writing... 1 Corinthians, Paul was talking about the problem in the church because different people had different favorites. And some were of Paul and some were of Apollos, some were of Peter. And so it makes sense that Peter had been there as well. So the apostles are likely out on the mission field and you have James there at the congregation and the elders with the church. If we go back to the overhead, please. So That's why we have this. Now, after greeting them, Paul related one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. 
When they heard it, they glorified God. They said, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. How many thousands? I just noticed Emmanuel Tove in here with Weston Fields. You have probably the largest think tank of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the world sitting right here on the second row. Uh, that's, that's like the whole room may be tilted right now just a little bit in that direction off the sheer mental weight of those gentlemen. The Greek word there is the word we get myriad from. Um, it's translated thousands because I think maybe of some idea that, that there were only thousands of believing Jews. But in fact, the Greek word means tens of thousands. There, I mean, we, we do ourselves a great disservice in the 21st century if we continue to think of the Christian faith as a Gentile institution. Paul says we are grafted into a tree that's got very distinct roots. And those roots, that tree is one of Judaism. I've told you before, my dear friend Rick Meadow, who... Uh, my colleagues know he runs our New York office, a wonderful Jewish man. I had him come speak on my panel at the Christian Scholars Conference. And he said to me, what am I going to do there? I'm a Jew. This is the Christian Scholars Conference. I said, you'll fit right in. Jesus was Jewish. So was Peter. So was Paul. So was Mary. We got Jews in our history. We're, we are, so, so we, we make a mistake. If these are the passages... And, and maybe it's because it's translated this way, but these are the passages that sometimes don't do service to how Jewish our faith is in its inception and our practice is in its inception. And we need to always keep that in mind because it's something that allows us to grow and expand and understand Scripture better when we understand that. So he says they're all zealous for the law. Oops, can't see it. There we go. So we have uh, myriads of Jews, tens of thousands among the Jews of those who believe. They're all zealous for the law. They've been told about you that you teach the Jews among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That you tell them not to circumcise their children. That you tell them not to walk according to their customs. What's to be done? They're going to hear that you've come. Now, this is a festival time, which is why you've got, I mean, the Jewish population of Jerusalem at this time is probably 30, 40,000 people. But you've got a huge influx of people for this. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. Now you're thinking, this sounds goofy. If you have not looked at Numbers 6 and the Nazarite vow, the Mishnah, which is our commentary of sorts, uh, uh, on uh, gives us a better understanding of the rabbinical practices, says if you take a vow not to shave your head, not to drink alcohol, a Nazarite vow, unless you pledge for a certain period of time, it's the default, which is 30 days. So we don't know what, but we do know that it looks like these men are going in to show that they have fulfilled a vow of holiness to God. 
So they're telling Paul to go with them so all will know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you, that you live in observance of the law. And Paul does so. So we're going to skip ahead a little bit here to verse 26. There we go. So Paul takes the men and the next day he purifies himself along with them and he goes into the temple, giving notice within the days of purification when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So he purifies himself. He goes in, says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Go on record. This is it. Now, if we go back to the PowerPoint for a moment, um, here is a picture uh, of a reconstruction of the temple in the day of, of Paul. And here you can see the main temple complex in the center. But surrounding it, is a small, low-level wall, a partitioning, a dividing, which provides for a court outside as well as a court inside. That outside of that wall is the Gentiles' court. That's, Gentiles were allowed in that far. Now, Paul, the, the women are actually allowed into this early part of the complex of buildings and the men are allowed in further. So this is not like um, handicapped parking where there's a $200 fine if you do it and you're not supposed to. This is serious. Here is a, uh, uh, this is I think at the Istanbul Museum right now. But this is an engraving that's been found. Here's a translation. No outsider shall enter the protective enclosure around the sanctuary. And whoever is caught will have only have him only have himself to blame for the ensuing death. Josephus wrote. Josephus wrote. And so this is probably 45 years later. Uh, after Paul's experiences there, 40-45, wrote the same thing, made the same notation. And, and it's, it's, it's not the kind of thing where you want, as a Gentile, to be going past that wall. So keep that in your mind as we look at what happened from here, if we go back to the, to the overhead. So, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against this people, against the law, and against this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple. And he's defiled this holy place. See, they'd seen this Ephesian fellow with him earlier in the city. So they just assumed that Paul had taken him past that wall. And so there's quite a riot. The city was stirred up. The people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. Once the gates were shut, they were seeking to kill him when word came to the tribune or the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Excuse me, I'm having trouble. The tribune takes soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The tribune comes up and arrests him and orders him to be bound with two chains. 
He inquired who he was, what he'd done. Now, some in the crowd, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. He couldn't learn the facts because of the uproar. So he just ordered him to be brought back to the barracks. When he came to the steps, Paul, when Paul came to the steps, Paul was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. The mob of people following, crying away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, can I say something to you? Clearly speaking in Greek. Now the tribune, let's make sure we're, how are we doing time-wise? Eh, not great. Okay, you just need to make sure you know this. Um, so in a Roman legion, uh, Roman army, the tribune, he's one of the big guns. Okay? Under the tribune are the centurions. And you'll have several of them. The centurions are called that because originally, though this got modified by the time of Paul, but originally, guess how many people served under them? A hundred. <laughs> okay. So this is the fella right here. Big gun. So what happens is, is Paul goes, Paul's carted off. The tribune, he says to the tribune, can I say something to you? The tribune says, whoa, 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 whoa. You speak Greek? Paul says, yeah, I speak Greek. And the tribune says, well, I thought you were the Egyptian troublemaker that's been causing all these problems. Paul says, I'm not the Egyptian troublemaker that's been causing all these problems. By the way, we know about the Egyptian troublemaker also from the Jewish historian Josephus. And that helps us date this around, at least Josephus dates this around 54 AD. So Paul says, uh, Paul says, um, no, I'm not that guy. And he says, well, what are you here for? And, and orders Paul to go ahead and just be bound. Paul says, can I, can I address the crowd? And Tribune says, yeah, have yourself a good day. So Paul gets on the steps and the Jewish crowds assembled in front of him. And Paul speaks to them in their language. Which either means Hebrew or Aramaic. Depending upon which scholar you're listening to. Regardless, the crowd is shushed when they hear him speaking in this language. Which gives credibility, maybe, that he's actually speaking in Hebrew. Something that was done in Jerusalem, though I'm not sure in the surrounding areas as much. So, I'm told. So, uh, uh, Paul addresses them. And you could think that Paul might just be trying to get himself established as innocent. The lawyer in me says that's what to expect. Expect Paul to tell whatever story he needs to tell, to do whatever he needs to do. But Paul doesn't do that at all. What Paul does instead is he takes the opportunity to proclaim Jesus. And the way he starts it out is especially poignant. Because Paul begins with the same phrase as Luke records it in the Greek. That Stephen had used when Stephen was making his defense before Stephen was stoned. And you'll recall Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is stoned with Paul 
holding the cloak of the people doing the dirty work. And so here Paul is back in Jerusalem. And Paul is now in the scene of being on trial in front of his people. And Paul is no longer, I mean, Paul played, this is deja vu. Paul played this. But the last time Paul played it, Paul was on the other side of the plate. And Paul was the one who was holding the coat and casting his vote with the Sanhedrin for the death of Stephen. And Paul begins, and like Stephen, Paul's not there trying to drive home anything other than the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus had done. We're all right, Richard. Don't worry about it. That's all Paul cares about. And so Paul begins and Paul explains and Paul does it in some marvelous detail. Paul says, listen, I used to be on your side of this fight. But what happened to me is I was leaving with papers to go arrest the Christians in Damascus and on the road. Jesus appeared to me. And at this point, people have this, those people had the same choice that we've got. Paul is either truly the nut job, or Paul is experiencing and has experienced something that truly changed his life. I've seen people change their life for money. But Paul wasn't making money off this change. This change cost Paul his money. It cost him his fame. It cost him his his position in society. It might have cost him his family. But it was a change that he had no druthers about. And so he gets called down in front. Oh, the tribune uh, uh, orders. The riot starts again. Paul actually kind of incited this one a little bit. He recognized there were some Pharisee, uh, some Sadducees and and Pharisees out there. And he said, hey, I'm just in trouble because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. At which point (laughs) the fights among the Jews between those who did and those who didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead got so intense that the rioting started all over again. At this point, the tribune orders Paul to be uh, uh, whipped with a flagellum. Let me see if I've got a picture of one. Ignore that, 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 that. Go forward, go forward. There it is. This is not, this is not your typical scourging. The flagellum is a, got this leather with bits of bone, bits of uh, metal balls, sharp items, And they would string you up and strip you bare. And there was a special Roman technique for this. It was a torturing device. There was a special Roman technique of how you would do it so it would fillet the muscles better between the ribs. And Paul says, hey, time out. I'm a Roman citizen, okay? I don't mind being arrested. But you can't do this to a Roman citizen. See, it would... It, it is what gives you potential to kill someone. Lots of people didn't survive this. This is what was done to Jesus before the crucifixion. And so the, 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 the centurion finds out that Paul's a Roman citizen, goes back to the tribune, says, we're about to do something that's illegal. He's a Roman citizen. The tribune comes back and says, are you really a Roman citizen? Yes, I'm a Roman citizen. 
says, okay, well, we're not going to do this then. We honor the law. And then the tribune, and I'm sure, you know, Paul's been beaten to a bloody pulp already. He's been in a riot. I'm sure his clothes are bedraggled. His hair is probably not perfectly coiffed. And if we were to believe what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he was kind of homely looking anyway. So he wasn't working with that much to start with. You can imagine what he looked like. So the tribune sees him. And the tribune says to him, as Luke records it, Hey, I'm a Roman citizen. I paid a lot of money for mine. I bet you really had to pay a lot for yours. Now, that's not just because the tribune's asking, the, you know, conversational. It's probably a bit of a dig. And Paul looks at him and says, uh, I didn't have to buy mine. I was born with it. It's been in my family for some time. And the tribune's kind of like, whoa. This was Paul. Paul would stop a beating that might take his life and hinder his ability to testify to Jesus. But Paul had no desire to make himself. Luke tells the story. Very clearly, Paul is innocent. There's no question that Paul's innocent of what he's being charged for. But Paul's not there saying, oh, here, I need to show everybody I'm innocent. I got to get out of this jail. This is one more time where you look at Paul and say, you are either a nut job or something truly happened to you in your world. Because the strength of your conviction is unmatched in anybody that's not whacked out or trying to make a lot of money. The strength of Paul's conviction was such that, that he set everything else aside in view of a surpassing value of proclaiming Jesus Christ. Risen, Lord, and Savior. Messiah. It's an amazing story. And it's an amazing story in what it shows. Here are our points for home. And then we'll end in time for the... Uh, thingy. They've been told that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Paul never taught the Jews that. Paul let the Greeks be Greeks, but Paul let the Jews be Jews. It's interesting to me, Paul described himself present tense as a Pharisee, as a Christian. He still maintained his role, his, his, his placement as a Pharisee. Paul did recognize a difference between ceremonial law and laws pertaining to, to uh, more direct morality. But we as Christians need to recognize for Paul, morality and holiness was never a byproduct or an afterthought. It was always of, of extreme importance to him. Paul sought holiness. And boy, I want to do that. I want my actions to reflect not only... I would like for people to look at me and say, Hey, there's been something that's happened in his life. Normal people don't do that. Of course, they might write it off in my case to being a nut job. I got to work on that too. But 
I mean, with Paul, it's clear he wasn't. You can't write what he wrote and be a nut job. You can't have the success he had that has changed the world for the gospel of Jesus. I want that holiness. I want to see it. Paul took the men. The next day, he purified himself along with them. Paul wasn't trying to cause trouble. But when the trouble came, he did not run from it. But Paul himself, he was sensitive to the, to the perceptions of others. We live in a tough age because we, we live in an age where I want to convince everybody to, to think the way I think and to do what I do and to be what I am. That's natural in all of us in 21st century America. But Paul had a great sensitivity. It's like David said today in the sermon. Paul's concern was never, I want everybody to be who I am. Paul's concern was always, I want everybody to be who God wants them to be. Someone came up to me one time and said, you think God's going to send me to hell because I smoke? No. But I will tell you this. Just get your life right with God. He'll tell you what you ought to be doing. And what you shouldn't be. And when he tells you to quit, you'll quit. I don't know. That was a kid then. I don't know that I was all that bright. But I do like the idea that that the goal here is to get your life right with Jesus, get your life right with God, get your life right with the maker, and let him direct you on your course. Which is the last part, because the word was given to Paul at the end of this account. And Paul was told the following. Take courage. You must testify also in Rome. Paul was not going to be killed there. Wasn't going to happen. He had a word from the Lord that the Lord was going to take care of him and get him to Rome, which God did. And I got news for you. This is a dual point for home. Actually, three if you'll read the story about Ron at the end. But two points for home here. First, I don't care where you are in your life and what's going on. You probably are not in a position to be arrested right now because of your faith. But regardless of where you are, take courage. Because if you're walking in the will of God, he's going to take care of you. Doesn't mean he's going to make it easy. Doesn't mean he's going to erase all of the problems. But he's going to hold your hand and teach you how to walk through them by his strength with his wisdom and guidance. He's not going to treat you like a little baby and pick you up and carry you through. He's going to teach you how to grow up in him so that you can find from him the strength to walk through with him. That's a tough message because sometimes we want to be children, just be carried through. No, he, he's, he's got us as children, but he's growing us into adults. And his assurance and his promise is, I will be with you. 
and I will guide you and I will strengthen you. Take courage. But he didn't just automatically pick Paul up and stick him in Rome. Paul had an arduous journey and opportunities to share the gospel each step of the way. And that's where I want to be. That's my point for home for me. I want to live God's plans. They're not always easy to figure out, but that's what I want to do. I want, I got, today's my birthday. I'm 53. I may not have another hour, but statistically, I've got a few more decades. And if the statistics bear out, I want each one to be lived more and more and more in the plan and will of God. That's the way to spend our days. So it may not be your birthday, but I hope you'll spend your days with me seeking the same thing. Would you pray with me? Father, the equipment doesn't always work. And the timing's not always right for us. But we take courage knowing that we're not here by ourselves. And we don't want to be by ourselves. We want to be on mission. We want laser beam focus. We want to be inspired by Paul. Where our goal is to find your will and your plan, not just to get ourselves off, even when we're wrongfully indicted. Father, would you plant deep within our hearts a desire to seek you, to learn who you are. Make that the paramount goal of our, of every day we've got left, to more fully See and understand you as you have revealed yourself historically and continue to reveal yourself today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.